Colossians chapter 3. Uh, we have shifted into the put on part of the service. Last week we looked at what we must take off. Today we're looking at put on, so 12 through 17. Um, one of the things that consistently strikes me in the foster care world and, and even processing with those who have adopted internationally is how significantly uh, the environment from which we are from, and more specifically, what that environment says about us or tells us about ourselves, how significantly that shapes and forms how we behave and who we are. Okay, so here's what I mean. It, like, really often, it is, it is an assumption that is made that once a kid is taken from a hard place, Right, whether that be an orphanage in a third world country or a hard place, you know, being a home right here in our neighborhood where they are neglected or abused. Uh, but regardless, or somewhere in between, once a kid is taken from a hard place and placed into a, a different family where they are safe and, and things are good and it's, you know, it's a normal, good family, the assumptions often made that that kid should now be able to be normal that that kid should now be able to follow rules and adjust and, and jump in there. And if you talk to any parent who has been in that world, fostered or adopted, they can tell you story after story of how behaviors follow that kiddo and linger into that new environment that just don't even make sense in that environment. But they're so shaped by where they've been that it's hard to shake that. I'm talking about behavior. <clears throat> Behaviors like kiddos expecting or like, you know, just assuming that their day is going to be spent on a one by two piece of carpet because that's what they were told to do in their previous environment so that they didn't get in anybody's way and didn't annoy anybody. They're going to spend their day on that one square. Or behaviors like three-year-old little, little guys stashing butcher knives from the kitchen beside their bed so that at night they can be protected. Behaviors like you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten year olds thinking that they got to look after their one, you know, their six month old, one year old, two year old siblings, change their diaper, get them food. Why? Because in their previous environment, that stuff didn't happen if it wasn't them. Right? Behaviors like really common. Lying, manipulating to self-protect, all that is, is, is really common. I can't even get into all the stories, but one of the more common things is a kid hoarding food, Right? They, they, they want to stash it. They want to know what's for dinner next, right? You're like, can we just eat lunch or can we just eat breakfast? They want to know what's for lunch, what's for dinner. Why? Because they didn't know if they were going to have lunch or dinner in their previous environment. They didn't know if they were going to eat tomorrow. So they're stashing it. They're putting their pockets. They're, they're hoarding it away, right? So these are, are behaviors that don't make sense in their new environment, but, but that's what they're used to. And so here, here's, but here's what we see over and over and over again is a new environment and a set of rules do not change these kids' behaviors, it won't fix them. You can't just tell them, hey, just, you know, we're going to eat dinner. Don't worry about it. Like, you can't just tell Why? Because you can't just tell them, hey, this is what we do here in this place. So this is how you're going to act. And you know why? Because they don't feel like they're a part of we. You understand what I'm saying? They don't yet know that they are safe. They don't yet know that they are a part of we. So we have to start, right? So, so the challenge then becomes... The, the privilege and the challenge of any of those families who have welcomed kids into that, their home from that environment is that they have to first speak to the need behind the behavior. Okay, because 
<clears throat> these kids' behaviors are being driven by their previous formation, by their previous understanding of who they are and what their environment means. And until we address the need behind that behavior, these kids aren't going to be able to change their behavior just because there is a set of rules. And so, again, the privilege and the challenge, and this is why I'm so passionate about us as Christians being the ones that step into these places, because what we get to do is, is, is say to these kiddos, hey, give me eyes kiddo, you are welcome here. You are loved here. You don't have to stay on that square of carpet. You can run around. This is, this is your home. We get to say to them, hey, you're safe here. Hey, I'll protect you. You don't have to protect yourself. We get to say to them, hey, I'm not dangerous so you don't have to protect yourself. I will, I'll protect you. Like we get to say to them, hey, you, you, get to be a, you get to be a kid here. We'll look after your, your, your siblings. You get to be the kid. Let us care for you. We, we get to say these things to them. We get to say to them, hey, you, you're provided for. You don't have to hoard food. You can always trust that we, we will feed you, right? This is the, the beauty that this, and here's the deal. We get to speak to that behavior. We get to speak to that, that truth about what is true, about where they are and who they are. And, and then we can talk about the behaviors. Then we can talk about how we live in this house. But we got to first address the, the reality that they don't know that they are we. They don't know that they're with us. They don't know that they're safe. They don't know that they can. Okay, so, so we get to do that. And the beauty of all of that is that it shows us the gospel, all of that that I just said shows us the gospel. Too often, people think of Christianity as, as just a religion with a bunch of rules, right? That if we keep these rules, God will be pleased with us, right? That if we live this way, then we will be accepted by God. But we know that experientially not to be true, that ch checking off a list of rules does not fulfill our hearts. It does not reconcile us to God. And if you notice in Scripture... The beautiful, one of the beautiful rhythms and themes of scripture is that scripture, <clears throat> when, when we're talking about behaviors and what we should do, they always come after who we are, okay? So another way to say that is that all, the indicatives always come before the imperatives. And if you're like me and English and grammar wasn't your strong suit, what that means is God always starts by telling us what is true about us before he tells us what we should be doing, right? He always tells us what is true about you before he tells you what you should be doing, okay? He always starts with our identity. He always starts with what is true about us and, and what he's done for us before we get into the list. You see that in the Ten Commandments. We're, we're familiar with the Ten Commandments passage, but if you, if you go back and read that narrative, that started, like he didn't get to that without first declaring to them, hey, you will be my people. You are my people. He says, I got you out of Egypt. With my own hand, I went and got you out of Egypt, and you are now my possession. You are my people, and I am your God. You see the parallel? Can you see the foster and adoptive parent leaning down to those kiddos and saying, hey, I got you. God says, hey, I went and got you. You belong to me now. You belong to me. You're my chosen people. Therefore, this is how we're going to live. This is how we're going to live. Right? So that's always true in the scripture. The whole book of Ephesians, you read it, the first half, 
It's indicative after indicative after indicative. This is what is true about God. This is what is true about us. And then the second half is very instructive. There's imperatives. Live this way, right? We see this. It's not as, as pronounced in first half, second half, but we see this rhythm in Colossians as well. And that's exactly what Paul is going to, to be talking about what we should do as Christians, how we should live. He's going to be talking about behaviors today. But he starts with a reminder of who we are. So let's look at verse 12 here. He starts with a reminder saying, put on then, right? He's referring back to what has happened, that we have been transferred from our kingdom of death, our own sin, our wages that we earned, death, separation, on our way to hell. We've been brought out of that and into the new kingdom, into the kingdom of the king, Jesus. And, and he says, so as a result of that, put on then God's chosen people, as God's children, chosen people, holy and beloved. Okay, so he's referring back to, if we look, remember last week, we talked about how we're no longer striving to receive our identity horizontally, right? We're not looking to get our value and our worth but from other people and how much better we are than them or what status we can achieve. Instead, we have received our identity vertically, God has declared who we are, and as a result of that, it transforms how we live. It transforms how we live. Last week, we, took, we looked at what we have to get rid of. This week, we're going to look at what we just as aggressively should put on. But before we get to how we should live, because that's some of us, right? We just want to get to the rules. Tell me what I should do, right? How many of y'all, like, like, okay, just, just, just tell me what I should do. I need to leave here with a list. I'll feel much better about my life. I know, that's some of y'all. I get it. The Bible doesn't really work that way usually, right? So we, before we get to the what we do, he wants to remind us who we are. And who does he say we are? What is, that, what is that next phrase? Put on then as what? God's chosen ones. God's chosen ones. Listen, so what he's saying is you're no longer striving for your status in the world. You're no longer striving for your validation from your neighbors or your friends or your childhood, the, the people who made fun of you when you were in school, like, or your parents or whatever has been put on you. You're no longer striving to get your value and validation from that. Instead, you have received it as God's chosen. You are chosen by God. Some of you have never been chosen. You've, like, like you were literally never chosen. Like, do they still pick teams and like kickball and softball and stuff and PE? That's evil, but whatever. It, it, I mean, some of y'all got some real PTSD from that. Like you were, you were never chosen, right? But, and, it, and we can laugh about that, but, but, but we press a little deeper and some of you actually don't feel desired. You don't feel chosen. That's been something that has identified you in your whole life. And I don't know how exactly that wound got there, but I know that it's true for many in this room that you don't feel chosen. You don't feel desired. You feel like people tolerate you. At best, right? You feel like people don't like you, and if, at best they tolerate you. You feel like you should really be discarded. You feel like that if people knew the truth about you, they wouldn't even want to tolerate you. This is, I know this is true. I know this is rampant. I know this is behind many, many of your sin struggles, many, many of your addictions. Like, I know this is behind so many of your fears because you don't feel like you have value and worth and you step into a room and you automatically diminish yourself. You automatically put yourself down here and, and, and you shut down and you don't allow yourself because you don't feel like you have value and worth. Listen, the Bible says that you were chosen. Ephesians talks about we were chosen before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? 
that means he hasn't chosen you because you were pretty good at stuff. It's not like PE. Well, that guy's athletic. I saw him hit the ball last week, so I want him on my team this week. No, no, no. God chose us before we did anything. That's the beauty of grace. Like before you've done anything, he has chosen you. It, like it, that's hard to get your mind around. And, I, and like, that's just true. It's not gonna get any easier. But we keep looking at it and we keep leaning in. And some of you don't understand why you would be chosen. Like, like an adopted kid, like why did mom and dad pick me? Like why, like you may not get a good answer other than because you may not get a good answer in your own terms because you're trying to find a way in which you would be defined as worthy to be chosen. And you're not gonna get that answer. But what you will get is, is the very simple and yet profound and life-changing answer that you're chosen because you have a good father. That's it. Because he's good. Not because you stood out at an orphanage, not because you stood out in, in whatever way. No, just because he's good. Because he's good. You're chosen. You were chosen. You, and, and, and because we are chosen, it says that we are holy and beloved. Some of you have never thought about yourselves as holy, right? We know, we're just saying holy, holy is the Lord, but like being in him, that's one of the themes of this book is that we are, we are rescued into Christ. We are identified with him. It said earlier in the chapter that our lives are, are hidden with Christ on high. So we are in him and, and as a part of his family, being in him and defined by him, we are holy. What does that mean? It means we are set apart. And I hate to use this word because the culture has just destroyed it, but you're, but you're, you're, you're special, you're set aside, not because you're a snowflake and that whole deal. No, no, no. Just because God has placed his name on you and he says so. You're holy. You're set apart. You are indeed his people. This is all parallel and, and, and runs along with the Old Testament of what God spoke over Israel. What he intended to do with the people of Israel was make a people that was set apart, that would stand out in the world as this is, God, this is, this is Jehovah's people. They are provided for, they are loved well, and they become a city set on a hill for all the world to give testimony or to, to see the testimony of God's people. So we are now receiving the labels that Israel, we are, the, we are grafted in, right? It's no longer about just that ethnic family. It, it, is, it is people from Jewish and Gentile descent that God says, I've chosen you, I've brought you in, and you are chosen and you are holy and you are beloved. You're beloved. Now, much like being chosen, th th like you have different defenses going up right now. Women are, are generally more acquainted with the desire to be beloved, but often struggle with what I said earlier is they don't actually think they could be beloved. Men are often like, I don't know that I want to be beloved, right? Like we have, a, we have an uncomfortable, we start to squirm, right? Somebody tells us that, we're, that they love us, we start to squirm a little bit, right? We got to make a joke. <laughs> How many men, yeah, we got to make a joke because we can't, we can't just sit with that. But listen, this drives so much of our behavior. If we're honest with ourselves, Knowing that we are beloved or believing that we, or, or never having been beloved drives so much of our behavior. You learned as a kid how people responded. 
You learned as a kid how you were treated. You learned whether you were tolerated. You learned whether you were dismissed. You learned whether people made fun of you. Like you began to process and, oh, I need to stay away from that and I need to lean into this. I need to not press that button. I need to not go there because, what? because you don't feel beloved. But listen, God as our Father wants us to know that we're beloved. We are loved. It does so much for, for bringing security to our hearts when we're talking about the striving. So much of the striving we talked about last week that leads to sin is because we don't feel secure in our identity in Christ. And when we don't feel secure in our identity with Christ, we start to get it from somebody else. And when we start to get it from somebody else, we start to get upset when they don't speak what we want to speak over us. And it leads to all of this pattern of sin. It drives so much. Right? I, I, as a dad, I, I, want so, I want to be more intentional than I am, but I want, to, I want to make sure my kids know they're beloved. I want to speak that over them. Each night when I put them to bed, hey, Daddy, loves you like and I and I don't just love like I like you like you're like you're mine you're the best that he loves you you know that right I, I love like and to individually for them to know and to receive that and I pray that God uses that to to settle their hearts and anchor them so that they don't give in to looking for that elsewhere you are beloved. John Eldridge writes about men struggling with this and, and, and the father wound, and I know that's trending and you can write it off, but one of the things he says is that as kids, like particularly boys, like we long, like there should be this stage where we are the beloved son, where, people, where our father just delights in us. He just delights in us. I got, a, I got an almost three-year-old and an 18-month-old. They're wild boys. And I, but you know what? My wife and I just sit and smile at them a lot. And then we go chase them because they ran away or they're breaking something, right? But we just smile at them. We just, I just enjoy them. Just enjoy them, right? We need to know that and receive that about ourselves. So, so church, that is true of you. We need to start there. If you're a part of the family of God, you have to start there. Before we start talking about the behaviors and how we're going to live in this household, you have to start by knowing, hey, you are beloved. You are safe. You are secure. You are provided for. You will be protected by God the Father. You have to start there. All right. So as that, now we put on, we, we've taken off the old way of living, and we're going to put on this new life, this new way of living, these behaviors, and, and it gets really practical. He says, this is what we should do, what we should put on, actively put on. Last week, we talked about in our new identity, there's things that we have to actively put away. There's things we have to actively kill. The language is put to death, we talked about. So it's active, intense pursuit of killing sin in our life. We need to take that same intensity and roll it into actively pursuing these behaviors. Okay? The same intensity we, we, we want to apply to killing sin, we don't just coast then toward holiness. Y'all know that. You don't drift toward holiness. There has to be an intentionality of pursuing these sort of behaviors as God's people. Not to become God's people, not to become welcomed by him, but because we are welcomed by him, because we have been received by him. Now we align our behaviors with that new way of life, with our new family system, with our new environment. We are a part of the church, amen? So what does that look like? The first thing he says is that we should be people of compassionate hearts, compassionate hearts. This is the same word that is used to describe Jesus' reaction to people in need. There's a famous passage where Jesus says, hey, the harvest is plentiful, 
but the laborers are few. But if you know what precedes that, that's Jesus looking out over the city of Jerusalem and his heart breaks. And it says that he has compassion upon them. Now, these are people who have spat in his face. These are people who are about to hang him on a cross. These are people who have forsaken his laws, have added to his laws, have completely walked away from the life that he laid before them. And yet, and yet he looks at them and he has compassion. And that's what leads him to say, hey, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And then he says, the harvest is plentiful. So when Jesus looks at this broken and busted world, instead of getting frustrated and angry and, and throwing out some political tagline about how if this would just happen, then we'd get back to, on track. Or, or we, you know, Jesus instead looks at the world and he has compassion. And he says, because they're, they're like sheep without a shepherd. And, and he says, man, I've longed to bring you under my wing. I've longed to, to well, and, and then that's what he's come to do is to provide that, to step into that. So are we a people who, who are able to see beyond people's behaviors? Are we as Christians able to see beyond people's behaviors or do we just write them off as lost causes? I want you to think about that. This, this compassion, this is, you know, you might ask, am I a compassionate person? Well, this is a good indicator. How do you respond to people who are struggling? How do you respond to people who don't have their lives together? Is your first thought, well, they need, to, they need to do what I did and get life together, right? They need to do what I did and get a job. They need to do what I did and, and just pull myself up, by, my, myself up by my bootstraps. Like, is that your first thought? Or do you have compassion upon them? Do you enter into their pain and, and their strife and, and try to picture their story? Do you humanize them? When you see the people struggling on on you know, on TV, or you see women giving themselves, you know, and, and, you know, for sensual images and those things, do you see, do you think, man, I wonder what her story is? That will help you battle against pornography. Like, be, begin to think, man, that is, that is somebody's daughter, that is somebody's, like, I wonder what her story is. I wonder what pain has led her there, right? And vice versa, if it's a man, like, we need, we need to be thinking in those realms. Like, do we see beyond people's behaviors and think about the story behind them, and that, that will then inform how we approach them. And we can have the heart of Jesus and have compassion upon them. This should be what defines us as God's people. This is going to be now, okay, we don't live this way. We talked about in verses you know, uh, five through 11. We no longer live in those sins. We don't tolerate them. Now, what does it actually look like? What are the positive identifying characteristics of the church? What should God's people look like? This is, this is what this is answering. What should we look like? The first question, or the first thing is we should be a people of compassion. Why? Because we're Jesus's people and Jesus had compassion. He had compassion upon you. You realize that, right? He had every right to just say, man, that fool has had every chance and he can't get it together. Can't get it together. But instead, he has compassion and he enters into our story to rescue us. The next thing he says after compassion and hearts is that we should have kindness. Kindness, this is included in the list of the fruit of the spirit and it's also a quality of God. Psalm 34, 18 says that, that um, that God is, um, is, Jesus taught us to be kind because God is, is, is kind to the ungrateful and the ungenerous and mercy and readiness define him. Later, Peter is going to say that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, right? So that kindness defines how we interact with people. We, we have compassion upon them, but then we, we show kindness to them. 
right? Not, not, not just to tolerate and, and never speak into, but no, so that we can be a people who reflect the image and, and the glory and the gospel of Jesus Christ to them so that they may be led to repentance. God is kind even to his enemies, it says. He shows kindness to them, which is meant to lead us to repentance. That's how he treated us as his enemies, right? Mercy, and, and, and you, you know people that are kind, right? It's almost hard to define, but you know when you've experienced it, don't you? You leave that situation and go, man, that person was just kind. Or there's somebody in your mind right now, that person is just, they're just kind, right? They show mercy, they're ready to help, they're just genuine. These are the people that when they ask you how you're doing, they actually keep looking at you and they want to hear and listen. You ever encounter somebody like that? One of my favorite men in the world, his name's Howard Stearns, not the radio host but guy from Saline County. And one of the things I love about him is, man, he just, every time he sees me, and this guy knows a lot of people and has helped a lot of people, but every time he sees, he just, how are you, brother? And then he just keeps looking at me. And I'm like, oh, he actually wants me to tell him, right? And it's almost staggering because, no, he's there in that moment. He's not trying to get to the next conversation. He's not checking his phone. Like, no, no, he's there in that moment. He's listening and he cares. That's kindness. You know this. They, they're putting themselves, or they're putting you before themselves. They, they, they care. They, they're, they're kind. We should be a people that when people encounter us, God's people, they say, man, those people were kind. Those people were kind. We're ready to help. We're eager to help. The next thing he says is <clears throat> humility. Humility. Now listen, uh, if we're honest, our culture doesn't really value humility. In fact, it values pride most of the time right? It's sort of subversive, and they may not say it quite that way, but this is not, and it wasn't in this day either. It wasn't held as a, as a virtue in, in ancient world, and, and really it struggles to kind of be in our day as well. But the same thing, you know when you've encountered somebody, man, that person was humble, right? That person, and, and, and humility, uh, I think C.S. Lewis has one of the most helpful definitions. He says, it's not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. And here's what he means by that. Humility doesn't mean that you have this low view of yourself, like I was talking about earlier, when you don't believe you can be chosen, you don't believe you can have value. That's not what humility is. Humility is understanding your right place in the world, that you are not God, right? You are below him, but you are above the creation, right? You are given, you, you, you are his beloved image bearer that is set to rule over creation, Right? And, and so we have a right understanding of our place in the world, and that leads us to, to not think that we're better than we are, right? not think that everybody should you know, do what we want. You ever just get mad people don't read your mind? Like, why don't you know I was turning in there? Why don't you get out of my way? Right? Like, why don't you scoot on over? Why don't you know I was going to come up behind you, and now because you've stopped in the middle of the road, I can't go ahead and turn right? Like, you know what I mean? I'm getting into the next one, which is patience, and I don't have it. But anyway, like, that, like we, we get mad that people aren't, just bowing down to our every need and the, the, you know, the road doesn't just split and allow us to do everything we want because we, we think that we're kind of the, you know, the chief resident and the whole world should kind of revolve around us. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. That means you're thinking of other people more than you are yourself. You're thinking about how you can help others instead of how they can help you. Isaiah 57, 15 says that God makes his dwelling by preference with those that are what? Of a humble and contrite spirit. Like that those, like those are the ones that God welcomes in, right? He opposes the proud, but he embraces the humble. Like this is, this is the posture of God. Those that are gonna be close to God are gonna be a people defined by a humble spirit. Jesus himself was, was identified as gentle and lowly in heart. He's humble. 
Philippians 2 paints one of the most beautiful pictures of humility, where it says Jesus was here with God, and he, and he decided to lay that down and instead enter into our mess for our sake. He enters in for salvation. He who knew no sin became sin for our sake. He laid down his crown. He laid down his glory. He laid down his life of, of luxury and glory so that he could enter into our mess. That is the pinnacle of humility, and we are to model that. I want you to imagine a community. As we're talking about these characteristics, I want you to imagine a community that is defined by these things. Man, how our world is thirsty for this, right? Everybody's divided. Everybody's angry. Everybody dismisses you know, any thought or stat or fact based off of where it came from and what party, like we're, we're not trying to even, you know, live in, in, in harmony with one another. I want you to imagine a community that is defined by these things and where humility is, is the chief characteristic and the defining characteristic. Man, how much less tension would we have? How much less pride and self-assertiveness would we have if we were defined by humility? If we had a right view of ourselves as God is our father, we deserve nothing before him and yet he's been gracious to us. Therefore, we get to be gracious with others and we put others before ourselves. That would, would radically transform our world. It would radically transform our church. He goes on. He says, after humility, we should be a people of meekness or your translation might say gentleness. This is also listed in the fruit of the spirit and it doesn't mean, we need to be careful about this, it doesn't mean weak and passive. To be meek and, and, and gentle doesn't mean that we are weak and passive people. Let me tell you real quick, weak and passive people get other people hurt. Because when God has called us to be a people who step in and stand firm and defend the vulnerable and, and, and you know, display strength when needed, when we don't do that out of the name of meekness, that doesn't bring glory to God, right? Meekness instead is not the absence of strength. Meekness is, is with the presence of strength is also able to kneel down and be gentle, right? Think of the battle-hardened warrior. Or I heard a comedian talking about a UFC fighter who's like the best in the world. And he said, I saw this dude at Disney World. And he was thinking, man, that guy could literally kill anybody in this park. Like he's, the, like he's one of the most skilled fighters in history. And, and none of us stand a chance with that guy. Right? There's strength there. There's incredible tenacity and ability there. Whatever you think about UFC, I'm just saying, like, that's, that's a bad dude, right? But he says, but this comedian was just pointing out, and he said, I saw him. And, and he said, everybody in that park is afraid of that. If they know who that guy is, everybody in this park is afraid of that guy, except his little girl. Because there that guy bends down, and he's gentle, and he's meek with his little girl. And she's not afraid of him. She's not afraid of him. We as Christians should be a people of meekness and of gentleness. Not brashness. Not mow people over. Knock people down. Don't care what you think. Get out of my way. No, no, no. People of strength? Yes. But people of gentleness? Absolutely. There's beauty in that. That's attractive, right? People want, like, that, that brings glory to God. Both Moses and Jesus in the Bible were defined as meek. But don't think they weren't strong. Right? The story of Jesus turning over tables in the temple was not one of just like impulse, like he just lost it for a second. If you read the story, he used a whip that he evidently took some time to make. Right? This is premeditated 
turning over tables. This premeditated cleansing of this temple, right? It wasn't an accident. He didn't apologize later. He didn't lose his, his, his stuff for a second, right? No, he didn't flip his lid. No, no. He planned on making an aggressive show of justice and holiness and, and dealing with the hard hearts and the sin of the people. So Jesus indeed was the epitome of strength, and yet he displayed true gentleness and meekness, right? So, so this should be true of us as well. And then the next is patience, and I already said, man, this is not my strength. I struggle here in general, but if you think about it, as kindness is supposed to be just kind of our basic approach to people and how we interact with them, patience is then our response to them. Right? So if we're supposed to respond with kindness, we're supposed to just live with kindness. Patience is how we respond when people do silly things. When people you know, frustrate us, people don't get it the way we get it. When people seem to be hard-headed, when people seem to be filling the blank, we're supposed to be a people of patience. Why? Man, our God is patient with us, right? The Bible says he's long-suffering. Remember Pastor Darren used to say that means he's got a long wick, right? The wrath will come, but he's, he is a long wick. Before he blows up, before he enters in with judgment and wrath, he puts up with a lot. And we should be a people who, as the next point says, put up with a lot. So we should be a people with patience, and that should lead to the bearing with one another. Bearing with one another. Y'all still with me? This is, this is kind of implying, if you just hear it, it's not always pleasant. If you try to do life with people in the church, guess what? Not everybody's your favorite. Amen. Right? Like, not everybody is people that you just enjoy being with. And that's just true. And that's okay. Well, what are we called to do? Bear with them. Bear with one another. They may annoy the mess out of you. Right? They may chew with their mouth open, like, really loudly. And that makes me twitch. <laughs> like, bad. Well, do I throat punch them? No. Nope. I bear with them, right? I bear with them. That's what we've got to do, right? So we're people who bear with one another. We, the, the world needs a people who will bear with other people. Instead of writing them off and discounting them and calling them names and, and, and making a flipping Facebook post about them, we need a people who are willing to bear with. We need to be that people. Church, our world needs us to be that people. And it goes even further. Like, he, this, is, this is rough. I know. Maybe we should have taken this in chunks because there's a lot today. What's he say next? Forgiving one another. Man, forgiving each other. Why? Why? We, we got we to keep going there. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Here's the, here's the other hard truth that most of you are acquainted with. As we do life together, we will get hurt. People will harm us. People will say the wrong things, they will betray our trust, right? But we, in this community, we as God's people, what our response is, is we forgive one another. Jesus was asked, well, how many times? How many times are we supposed to forgive? And what's Jesus' answer? 70 times seven. You're like, well, that's a lot. 490, I don't know. Am I supposed to keep a, like a tick mark? Like, I think I, no, it just means just keep forgiving. Keep forgiving. What does this mean? It means when you are harmed and you are ready to rise up and, and get your pound of flesh and get your vengeance and tell everybody how ignorant that person is or whatever they did, you're supposed to pause. You're supposed to instead reflect on all that you have done. All that you have sinned against a holy and righteous God. And how did he respond to you? 
that you remember that you actually play out, man, I am a liar. I am a thief. I'm a glutton. Like I have spat in God's face. He laid before me life and I chose death and, and, I, and I just continued. Like we're supposed to remember that and that then will lead us and affect our actual hearts to be able to extend forgiveness. Now, I need to say a couple things about forgiveness. Forgiveness does not always mean restoration. Okay, here's what I mean by that. Grace and forgiveness can and should often have a backbone. So while forgiveness may be required of us in, in these situations, and it will be, that doesn't mean that we automatically go back to life as usual. Here's what I mean. There may be spouses who have been cheated on by their spouse, right? Trust has been lost, betrayal has been had, and while forgiveness may be extended, that doesn't mean trust is reinstated. Not immediately, not immediately, right? We've had people say, well, you, you forgive me, what, you gotta trust me now. Well, no, trust is earned. Doesn't mean for, that doesn't mean we get to withhold forgiveness, but does, we don't always go right back to the relationship as it is. Some people, right, have been harmed by their, their dad or their mom, right, physically, right, have been beaten. Some women have been physically beaten by their men, right? And so, we, first of all, First of all, you need to know the Bible does not tell you to just stay and keep getting beat. Whoever preaches that nonsense needs to be called out. Jesus will have his day with those guys. Just so you know, women, you need to get away and get protection. I did not say you run immediately to divorce. I say you run away. You run to the church. You run to the elders. You run to the police. And we will deal with that joker. We will call him to repentance. And if he is willing to do it, we will do the work of getting him restored. And maybe then, after time, we'll look at your marriage, right? but that guy has to be willing to be restored. We don't tolerate that stuff, right? So, yes, forgiveness may be extended, but that doesn't mean we go right back home. It doesn't mean we go right back in that environment. We do, it doesn't mean we go right back and just put ourselves in there. There may need to be boundaries still. Like, it's okay, like, for you, as a, like, you know, a person who was abused by your dad or your mom, like, yes, for your own heart's sake and for the sake of the gospel, you need to do the work of forgiveness. You need to go to counseling. You need to set in the word. You need to get there. And that won't always be quick and easy. And it's not just a one-time thing either, is it? Those of y'all, y'all live some life. You know forgiveness isn't just a one-time decision. It's a perpetual choice we have to keep making, right? But that doesn't mean that we trust our grandkids with that abusive dad, right? Or his grandkids, right? Our kids. That doesn't mean we, you, you see what I'm saying? Forgiveness doesn't always mean we just go, you know what? It's fine. Have at it. Right? Person who's raped or, or, or murdered in jail. Like we, yeah, forgiveness is a, is a beautiful thing that God needs to lead us to, but that doesn't mean we just say, you know what? Do what you want. Forgive. Like, I hope you hear what I'm saying, and if not, please talk to me afterwards. I don't want to leave that undone, but we got to be clear about some misunderstandings with forgiveness. But, but we are supposed to be a people who we forgive because Jesus has forgiven us. Verse 14 says, And above all these things put on love which does what binds everything together in perfect harmony. These are going to get progressively more general. Yes, these are some specific things we should be known by and strive to put on. But he says, hey, just in general, be a people of love. You know 1 Corinthians 13, it's read at weddings, but it's actually talking about how we should love people within our, our church specifically. What does it do? Love bears all things, believes all things, forgives all things. Like, you, you know... You know that the poem, you know the beauty of that, that passage, that that should be how we treat one another. Love hopes all things, right? We, that is what defines us as a people. And, it's, and Paul even says, which binds everything together. 
in perfect harmony. That sounds really idealistic. Like I'm going, Paul, bro, I don't know if you've lived, we ain't getting perfect harmony here. All right, I'm, I'll settle for just like no crazy text in a day. Perfect harmony, like I, well, that'll be an eternity. But no, Paul says, listen, when we are a people defined by love, this will have a transformative impact on our lives and on our community. Jesus said, hey, this is a new commandment that you do what? You love one another. He says, hey, this is how you'll be known by the world that you what? You love one another. Love one another. Bear with Hope, believe the best. Don't insist on our own way. Put others above ourselves. Like above all, put, put on love. This is an active choice to put it on. You're not always going to feel it. Any of these things. You just go, well, I, you know, I know I'm supposed to be kind, but I just don't feel kind. Well, you got to choose to be kind, right? Like it's not just this feeling that's going to come. It's this, it's this active putting on and really what we're doing is we're putting on Christ. He's not asking us to do anything he's not done himself. We put on Christ. We're receiving that as our defining clothing garment. Verse 15, he says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you were indeed called into one body, and be thankful. This is, you got to hold this in context with what we looked at last week. So much of the sin that we see in the world and you struggle with is rooted in our, our, our struggle and our desire to get identity from somewhere else, horizontally. Right? You, you have spent your whole life hoping that you'll be enough someday. You've spent your whole life hoping you can get rid of the guilt and shame someday. You've spent your whole life hoping that somebody will notice you someday. Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. Lay that struggle aside. Step into the, the light of grace. And that now defines you. And that peace rules in your heart and it puts to rest that horizontal struggle that we all feel. He says, let it, let it, rule in you. Let that peace rule in you. That, that, he's talking collectively to the church. We should be a people who let the peace of Christ rule in us. That allows us to not defend ourselves. That allows us to not have to be right. That allows us and, and, and commands us to put others above ourselves, right? The peace of Christ transforms how we treat one another. And we need to be a people who are defined by the peace of Christ. And it says, quick little note, and be thankful. Remember last week we talked about how coveting seems like this innocent sin, but it, it leads to anger, right? I'm coveting, I want what you got, and I'm mad that I don't have it, now I'm mad at you, right? Now I want to I wanna hurt you, that's malice. I'm not going to punch you, so I'll talk bad about you, that's slander. You remember that whole progressive deal? Listen, he throws this in and be thankful. Why? Because thankfulness is going to counter covetedness. Thankfulness is going to allow us to not be a people who struggle with coveting when we're thankful for what we have and how God has blessed us, we're able to be a content people. So be thankful. Be thankful, it says. And it says, I gotta keep moving, verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts. Listen, that we as a people, we're not just some club that have some rules. And you know what? If you fit the deal, you'll, you, know, you can be a part of our deal. No, we are a people who are defined by the word of God, that our gatherings, our hope, our charter as a mission, like everything is about the word of God. It should dwell in us richly. What does your church teach? The Bible. What is your church about? The Bible, right? Well, what about real life? Yeah, they point us to Jesus, right? It's always about his word. That's what anchors us. That's the only thing that I have to offer you up here is his word. So it should dwell in us richly. And we should be a people who are teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. That doesn't just mean me. 
That means you speaking the word of truth to one another. You realize that, right? It's not just waiting, maybe Jordan will get to that one day. No, you speak the truth to one another. There's a caveat. He says, how should we do it? In all wisdom, right? Because we all know there's a right way and a wrong way to approach somebody with the truth, isn't there? Right, you come in with a posture and you're corrective, like it's not gonna go real well. We have to pray for the peace again, right? You're gonna rise up and wanna defend yourself. But in all wisdom, we are people who are admonishing and teaching one another. And, and this is crazy. This is unlike any other community in the world, but we are the people, the people defined by praise. We are people defined by praising our audience of one, by praising our king of kings. Our attention, our hope, our value, our worth is directed upward. We're not looking, at, we're not looking horizontally. We're not looking to, to be better than the rest of the world. We didn't join this club to get prestige so we can feel better than our neighbor. No, no, we have gathered here because we're flawed and imperfect people and we need Jesus, amen? And so we aim our praise, we aim our, our, our glory and our, what spills out of us, we aim it at Jesus. And it comes out in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Some people wanted to you know, talk about, was well, that, is that the, the just you know, different types of worship? That must be you know, contemporary and you know, use that to promote some blended worship. No, no. It's just saying we are people who spill over with praise. And then our gatherings should be defined by praise. Our gatherings should be defined by truth-saturated worship. Our gatherings should be defined by, like, people should be able to come into our midst and, and be very clear about what we preached and what we exalted. And if it's anything other than Jesus, we should be repenting. We should close the doors. Right? That we should be a people of praise. Why? Because we're thankful. With thankfulness in your hearts toward God. And then, because we don't get a command for every issue in our life and every issue in the world, right? We don't get a clear command about what, you know, should I take this job or should I not take this job? Or should I marry this person or should I not marry this person? Or should I buy this house or not buy this house? You, you see what I'm getting at? We don't get a specific about everything. We're not supposed to be ruled by that sort of level of detail but here's what Paul says. Here's, the, here's the, the final sort of, hey, and for any other questions, right? For any other issues you encounter, here's what you do. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to, the God, to God the Father through him. So what, what do we do with our life? What do we do with this decision? What do we do with this friendship? What do we do with this opportunity? You run it through that lens. Can I do this and bring glory to God? Can I do this without compromising my witness to God? Can I, can I go and have this beverage with this person without compromising my, my, my witness and his glory? Can I go and, and, and work in this place without compromising my, can I, can I bring glory to God in this relationship? Can I bring glory to God in this vocation? Can I bring glory to God in this neighborhood with this car? Like, that's what you should be asking. Should I buy this car? Can I bring glory to God? Right, and we could justify some things in really weird ways. I get it, I've heard it. Well, I'm, I'm not, I don't even have time. But you know, like you're gonna be intellectually honest with yourself and, and check your own spirit there because yeah, you can, you can, you can uh, justify some extravagant expenses for the glory of God in some weird ways. And you're like, bro, I, you, anyway, uh, another, another sermon, sorry, sorry. But that is the catch-all. Whatever you do, do it. Whether it's in word or deed, do it. Everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Our Father, our good Father now defines everything about our life. He's what we can't stop talking about. He's what we've got to know more about. He's what we spend our time talking about. He's, he's what has captured our affections. 
You know what that's like, right? When, I, I remember living in St. Louis in 2011 when the Cardinals made that incredible playoff run. They weren't even supposed to be in the playoffs and they ended up winning the series. It was, a, it, was, it was an awesome time to be in St. Louis. Everybody was just caught up in Cardinal fever. Like, it was awesome. I worked at Home Depot. When the Cards games would stop, we had no customers. And we just listened to the radio, right? We turned on TV in the break room. We had no customers. Ain't nobody shopping for lumber. We're watching the Cardinal game, right? And everybody was caught up in that. Jesus is so rich. He's so amazing. He's so life-changing that we get caught up in that and it changes everything. All we can talk about, all we can spill over, all we can focus on is him. And he's such a good father that he changes everything and it gets really practical and it goes back to our struggle thinking that we have to live this way because we're still being defined by our old life, right? Anybody still struggle with being defined by your old life? Anybody still struggle with the behavior still, still creeping in your old identity? called the flesh. Our good father changes everything. I was talking to uh, some of the foster and adoptive parents before the sermon to kind of get some of those examples. And I thought I'd close with this. There's a, one mom was telling me they adopted a little guy internationally. And, and even after a couple years with them, he still struggles with thinking that their love and their acceptance of him is determined by whether or not he's good meaning his behaviors. And so oftentimes when they're disciplining him or correcting him, he'll say, are you going to kick me out of your family? Like that that's his trigger, that's his response. Like, oh, I'm in trouble, I have not lived up, are you going to kick me out of your family? And they get the privilege of continually getting down and telling him, nobody, never. Nobody, you're a part of our family forever, no matter what you do. Nobody, you're ours. You bear our name. You're part of our family. You have our identity. That will never change. It'll never be taken away no matter what you do. Nobody. You are ours. I'm not going to kick you out of our family. This is, this is the gospel. This is fully love. This is the prodigal son coming home with the speech thinking, I don't belong here anymore, but maybe I can just be a servant. And the father says, you come here. And he embraces him. This dude's been living in, in pig crap, right? Got it all over his body. And, and dad embraces him full-on mess, stinking, not deserving nothing. And, and then dad embraces him and he says, go get him my new clothes. Go get him my ring. His identity is not the sin. It is not his mistakes. His identity is he belongs to me. He's a part of this family and we're gonna identify him as such and we'll, we'll worry about his behaviors later. He is mine, amen. That is the, the, the truth of the gospel that our father screams over us and defines us and then frees us to live in the way that he's put out for us to live. Let's pray. God, help us to receive this. Help us to live this. Help us to let the, the gospel get down deep in our hearts. And, and, and may we actually be a people, maybe for the first time, that believe we are beloved and we're chosen. And may that lead to transformation that the whole world will take note of. Father, you know the hearts of people in this room. Some have never allowed themselves to be loved by you. Some have never allowed themselves to believe the goodness of the gospel, that they could be loved by you, that you are that good, that you can overcome their sins. Would you wreck them with grace this morning and allow them to, to have the faith to just fall into your arms today? 
for the rest of us. May we, na- may we not take your grace for granted. May we not take your love for granted. May we not be a people who are satisfied with just coasting through life, but instead are aggressively putting away sin and aggressively putting on our new life and our new righteousness that you have given us. May we be a people who are overwhelmed by your grace and it spills into every part of our life and transforms how we live, which leads to your kingdom being advanced and others knowing your glory and your goodness. Help us, Lord. We want to be that people. Overwhelm us. Save us from just going through the motions. Come and be present and powerful in this place at this time. We ask it and hope it in Jesus' name.